my frustration is also that sometimes things don't have to be as bad as they are. And sometimes I think our policies get in the way of people taking care of people. And so sometimes it's people taking care of paper before we can take care of people. And the greatest discrimination and disparity right now when it comes to primary care access is people with mental health. Welcome to Centering Health Equity. I'm Maria Hernandez, your co-host and president of Impact for Health. At this point, you would be hearing a warm welcome from my colleague, Dwayne Reynolds, co-host of the show. I'm delighted to share that on July 29th, days after our recording of our show, Dwayne became the proud father of Stockard Anson Hobson Reynolds, a beautiful, healthy baby boy. I know you all join me in wishing him well as he takes time to celebrate this wonderful moment. Our show today is about what some have called the shadow pandemic that has surfaced in parallel with COVID-19. The World Health Organization reports a 25% rise in the number of people with anxiety and depressive disorders around the world during the pandemic. One in eight visits to the ER during 2021 were linked to a mental health or substance use disorder in the United States. Our guests today are Dr. Alexander Salerno, founder of the Urban Healthcare Initiative Program and director of the Community Health Outreach Program in New Jersey, and Chuck Ingoglia, president and CEO of the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. Our conversation looked at the magnitude of the challenges anyone suffering with mental illness can encounter in finding the right care in what can only be described as a fragmented mental health system. We looked at how a unique program of integrated care, a place where physical and mental health needs can be addressed, and how it's building on known practices to address complex care needs for those experiencing mental illness. We also talked about the importance of sharing knowledge about mental health first aid among informal and formal support systems that individuals may access. As we think about any effort to advance health equity, these conversations about access to mental health services need to take center stage now more than ever. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Salerno and Chuck, for joining us today. I wanted to start off with a little bit of the larger context of the issues facing the nation as it tries to address mental health needs. The latest research is that something like 53 million people struggle with their mental health. That's about 18% of adults. And just last month in July, the U.S. launched a new mental health crisis hotline Now, apparently, anyone that's experiencing a mental health issue can call 988, either as a text or a phone call. So the World Health Organization says one in eight have a mental health condition, but 85% of those individuals go untreated. So I'm so excited that we're talking about this today, and I hope that we have some wonderful conversation about what uh, different health systems might want to consider doing in order to address those needs. And I'll turn it over first to Chuck, if you can give us a sense of how you see that national landscape of issues that are facing us today to address mental health needs. 
Well, you know, the data that you shared from the World Health Organization, I would dare say that is pre-pandemic data, right? That was what we were kind of used to seeing pre-pandemic. But all of the data that's coming out now as we're dealing with the realities of COVID show that the rates of people experiencing challenges, either anxiety or depression, have tripled since the pandemic began. So back in 2019, the Kaiser Family Foundation, their research was showing that about 11% of adults were saying that they were experiencing symptoms of anxiety or depression. But by the fall of 2021, that number was 31.6%. And we see that kind of data following suit in many other surveys that are done of the general population. The Centers for Disease Control show that a third of high school students reported they experienced poor mental health during the pandemic, and 44% reported they persistently felt sad or hopeless during the past year. And we see that also playing out for different different kinds of communities. Uh, Again, the CDC showed that in August of 2020, their data showed that 41% of those surveyed reported symptoms of anxiety or depression or increased substance use, and nearly 11% said they had seriously considered suicide over the previous 30 days. But among Black Americans, 44% reported symptoms of anxiety and depression, and 15% say they had seriously considered suicide. The only other data that I would just uh, give you is you know, the CDC every year collects information about accidental overdose. In this last year, we have the highest numbers we have ever seen in terms of people dying from drug overdoses, about 108,000 people. As we know, that's just the tip of the iceberg, right? That's not the people who've had other kind of near overdose experiences. So, you know, I think in general, we're at a time where there's a lot of hurt going on and uh, a lot of need. So Maria, the data that you just cited. Thank you so much, Chuck. Now I'd like to hear from Dr. Salerno what your thoughts are because you're seeing the mental health crisis on the front lines. So Maria, from my perspective, I'm an internal medicine physician and we kind of, you know, are the Baston Robbins of 31 flavors when it comes to people coming through our door. So of course we see a lot of mental health um, you know, or we often don't see the mental health when it's actually there as well. You know, there's obviously a lot of things that you need to try to cram into 12 minutes, which is on average how much a patient encounter happens right now in our current system, which is better than what it used to be. Um, used to be, you know, somewhere around seven minutes. And so we're trying to improve by doing better and not doing more, but you know, it's a supply and demand issue as always. So what I noticed though, obviously post COVID, COVID kind of ripped the bandaid off on a lot of issues in our healthcare system. I mean, it exposed a lack of public health. It exposed a mental health crisis discrepancy. It exposed healthcare disparity uh, among cultures and socioeconomics. So, you know, it's kind of like, the tale of two cities from, you know, you know, the best of times and the worst of times. My frustration is also that sometimes things don't have to be as bad as they are. And sometimes I think our policies get in the way of people taking care of people. And so sometimes it's people taking care of paper 
before we can take care of people. And that can be all too time consuming and unnecessary. I'm sure later on today, we're going to talk about primary care access to the behavioral health patient, which is even a greater challenge. So they may be able to reach out and get care that's needed, but they suffer such a great disparity when it comes to diabetes and life expectancy and infectious diseases and other things like that. And they don't really have a place to go to to get that necessary fundamental ABC care. So that's kind of my perspective on it. I would basically say, and I, I practice urban medicine. I've been in the urban community two generations. So the greatest discrimination and disparity right now when it comes to primary care access is people with mental health. They, have, they do not have a spoken, heard voice. Thank you uh, for that perspective, Dr. Salerno, and sort of the intro to some of the disparities that are plaguing patients as they interact uh, with the system. From a mental health perspective, where are you seeing the greatest difference as you look at disparity vis-a-vis other types of clinical disparities. So what is essentially happening in the system that is really exacerbating the mental health disparities picture? Well, I think, you know, again, coming from the environment that I practice in, mental health can be a very taboo thing. And so I treat a lot of folks from the Caribbean and mental health has a very bad taboo uh, connotation. So you can't fix a problem if you can't address a problem or acknowledge a problem. So that's, I would say, my single biggest factor. It's hard. The minute you mention mental health, a wall can happen. And Culturally, people go back to what mental health may have been like in their you know, background and how it was viewed by their previous generation and passed on from grandparents. And so it's a terrible stigma. I mean, there are certain stigmas, you know, condition-wise, you know, in the old days, AIDS was a stigma, right? When you heard of AIDS, you know, people all backed off and were very like, you know, hyper-paranoid. Mental health is one. Uh, Alzheimer's disease is another, you know, kind of stigma. So I, I think that in itself, it, it, it creates a certain type of barrier to have an open conversation because you feel that you're going to be labeled a certain way and treated a certain way. I think also to be open about mental health can sometimes lead to certain types of placing you in, in a certain bucket or into a certain characteristic. So your voice won't be as meaningful if you say, listen, I have chest pain or I have this pain going on. Because we're going to just say, oh, you know, it's just the person being anxious or it's, it's the somatization when it may be actually a true physical illness that's happening. So there is that taboo. It is still very much present. We might be acknowledging all these statistics, but are we acknowledging the people that make up those statistics in such a way? And you mentioned uh, the Caribbean population. I'll just say from the perspective of of being an African-American person, there is stigma and taboo in accessing mental health services and particularly understanding that the diversity of mental health providers doesn't really match the population need. And there's already sort of that trust factor at times 
between a white physician and a black patient or Hispanic patient. And so I think there's a dynamic there about trust and vulnerability as we think about mental health. I also think there's an opportunity to create concordance between providers and patients, which really is about um, matching a patient uh, of a certain demographic, cultural, racial, ethnic, with a physician or clinician of that same demographic because there's an element of trust that is automatically there that can then perhaps take them a step further and actually get to a discussion about mental health, uh, which is, again, obviously taboo, as as you've mentioned, in certain communities. So I, I definitely appreciate that standpoint uh, with the patients that you mentioned you see. And Dwayne, I would just mention, you know, we just uh, released a national poll about access to care. And the topic that you brought up was one that was really hit there is that people, one of the struggles people have in accessing care is they want to access a provider that they feel comfortable with, that looks like them, that understands them, that uh, understands their culture. And I know, you know, especially behavioral health organizations have a desire to have a workforce that looks like the communities that they serve. But it's really hard, you know, to get uh, to get people the support they need to get through school, to get the right credential, uh, the amount of debt that people have to take up front, and then the inadequate compensation for working in our field all create barriers. And I think those are some of the solutions that we need to be thinking about if we're serious. How do we make it easier for people to get into this field and then actually pay them a decent wage, a living wage? Yeah, in fact, um, the APA just released a study that 86% of psychologists are white. And when I went to grad school and I was one of the only ones in the PhD program at the University of Texas, which is a largely Latino state in our nation, it was pretty frightening that there weren't others there. And one of the things that you know we came to talk about a lot of times is just there will always be that workforce discrepancy in terms of the diversity of people in the healthcare professions. And it's continued, right? So we've started identifying some of those barriers. Um, this, this discussion is a really important one about finding someone that you trust, finding someone that you can relate to. And it is important for everyone to know that a psychologist should be trained on culturally effective care. A physician should be trained on how to uh, approach culturally different individuals and advance health equity. So let me turn back to you, Dr. Salerno. What are some of those barriers that you feel need to be addressed? I think it first starts with what I like to say is facts over fiction. A lot of decisions that people make about their health care is based on fiction as opposed to facts. Healthcare literacy and education is really important. You can't fix a problem until you embrace that you have a problem. So in one of our, my not-for-profit organization, uh, UHIP, I, I partnered up with a lot of black ministers and, and deacons. And one of the key lessons I learned from one of my pastors in the program was that fear is an emotional sin. And so if you fear something, you won't be making a rational decision about it. You'll be sinning how you approach that object of fear. A lot of people fear health. 
right? They fear going to the doctor. They fear cancer screenings. They fear the idea if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But we know that's a broken philosophy. So I, I really think like it's about, you know, having real conversations in the real, you know, setting that people are comfortable to. It's not, it's expanding the healthcare delivery. So it's not your traditional hospital clinic or white coat office, right? Why can't we be having healthcare conversations in, you know, barbershops? Or why can't we be having mental health conversations in barbershops or in, you know, sporting events or at the diner or somewhere where people congregate? It's not the field of dreams you build that they will come. I kind of think like we need to build that trust through communications and communicate not at people, but with people, okay, in such a way that they aren't afraid and that they can embrace the topic and, and be able to take it, you know, with them on a journey. So healthcare, it's, look, it's, it's not rocket science. I mean, if you look at the three major causes of death in our country, cardiovascular disease, cancer, and I mean, it was stroke until COVID, now it's COVID. I think we could do a lot better about it with communication, dialogue, and approaching it in a multidisciplinary kind of way. So it's not just limited to doctors and nurses having conversations. It's pastors, it's barbers, you know. I mean, in the old days, right, like hundreds of years ago, barbershops were where places not, you know, where people went to get health care, you know, like long, long time ago, right? So there was that connotation of health and, and the barbershop. Yeah, that's such an interesting concept because I think we have overcomplicated a system that really should be about how you connect with the community in ways that make sense for the community. You, what you're speaking about really resonates with me because I do think we have to forge those relationships in a different way because the healthcare system itself feels very paternal, paternalistic, and hierarchical to people. Oftentimes, a person coming into the system itself feels that they have a disadvantage because they don't know and understand you know, some of the clinical things. So, so their health is in the hands of someone else. That creates mistrust in and of itself. And so when that happens, then the ability to actually get to fruitful conversations about all aspects of their health is a little bit thwarted. And I can see in the context of mental health care in particular, again, it is such a taboo thing still for our society that unless we can build trust and, and take the work to communities and patients within those communities, then I think we're, we're going to have a bit of a challenge really, um, you know, getting to the substance of solving that issue. Well, I was really struck by your comment about how important it is to understand what we're talking about. And, you know, the National Council, we're lucky enough to have brought to this country a program called Mental Health First Aid, which teaches people the signs and symptoms of mental illness and what to do if you are experiencing, you know, if you see somebody who might be experiencing uh, an anxiety attack or, or depression or something. And I was talking this morning to the CEO of a national association that we just offered mental health first aid training to his staff. And within the first week, he, five or six staff reached out to their EAP to ask for help. And the staff reported back, you know, how thankful they were that their company would offer this kind of support to them. And he was really struck by that. Those are probably six staff that would not necessarily 
have gone for treatment if they hadn't had this kind of opportunity. And so the question becomes, how do we create that kind of um, opportunity for, for, for more people? Yeah, you know, Chuck, there was a story about eight out of 10 people looking for a new job would look to see if the company they're going to work for provides some kind of mental health support. Because I think we all know, again, the pandemic changed everything. And now that people are trying to go back to work, now there's a different level of anxiety about, you know, am I going back and getting exposed or I got really comfortable with being at home. I'm I'm not sure I want to go out again. So there's a lot of factors at play that make the workplace a ripe area of opportunity to make sure people get the referral or the support or the right connections to be able to get the care they need. So as we think about examples of communities or organizations that have addressed these mental health challenges, where do you see organizations in these communities that are doing this effectively? I actually think that the system needs a major overhaul. So here's my interaction with outpatient behavioral health. I go in as primary care and I provide primary care in outpatient behavioral health centers to patients that are there strictly for behavioral health. And it works great, but I think right now healthcare in our system is very fractionated and fragmented. We don't approach the patient as a whole, you know, so we talk about holistic care, but I kind of, you know, I spell holistic care as W-H-O-L-E and not O-L-I-S-T-I-C-K, okay, or C. So we're not doing holistic care, you know? And so what better place, if you think about population health, right, and public health, and we're trying to address another type of pandemic, which is mental health and the sequelae of mental health when it comes to comorbidities, reactive healthcare, reactive dollars, uh, tremendous disparity in healthcare outcomes, healthcare access to common diseases. What better way to do this than approach the outpatient behavioral health centers to also require them to provide primary care and incorporate primary care? Because if you have a patient, a client, a customer from nine to three or eight to five, Monday through Friday, why not carve out, you know, an hour or half an hour where a healthcare report card could be created, they could get their vaccination, they can get their proper treatment of diabetes, they can get a better approach of of pharmacy, because pharmacology is a big compliance factor in our country, okay? So that would be a tremendous way to take the 20 medicines that the psychiatrist is prescribing and the 10 medicines that the internists are prescribing, and half of them don't make any sense, and they conflict each other and make it truly a holistic approach in care. That's customer focused, where they are going Monday through Friday, where they feel safe, where they feel comfortable. Primary care for a behavioral health patient, I mentioned, it's either in an ER with restraints on a gurney or in a prison bed. That's the experience of primary care access to a lot of our behavioral health patients. And it doesn't need to be. You know, and I and you know we did like the PQ PQ nine you know, PQ yeah, yeah. Uh, depression scale, and we did it uh, in our programs that we were providing primary care in the behavioral health. 
these scales improved over the course of year to year to year because patients weren't worried about where they're getting primary care. They weren't worried about hepatitis C, which we diagnosed and treated. They weren't worried about latent TB, which we diagnosed and treated. They weren't worried about their uncontrolled diabetes and why aren't they on this medicine and how come their psychiatrist isn't talking to their primary care doctor. Well, now we could because we were literally down the hallway from each other. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, this has been a huge push of our organization for the last 12 years is to get more primary care capacity and access into specialty behavioral health organizations. We know a lot of them are trying to do that, to bring pharmacy in-house as well, to do a better job of that. But I agree with you, more, more needs to be done. You know, we're leading a national effort to really require organizations to do primary care screening to the extent that they can bring primary care in, uh, but if not, to, to do it in collaboration with someone like you. Uh, but certainly this has got to be more of an expectation. You know, the easiest way and the quickest way to fix this is in the pocketbook, right? So if the centers are compensated now, not just for above neck, but also take into consideration below neck and healthcare outcomes, that will change policy and that will tear down barriers. Because a lot of times when I've gone to a center that we're not part of and I'll speak to the case manager, you know, a lot of times there's some resistance. They're like, oh, no, that's more work and that's malpractice and that's this and that's that. And we have enough to do. It's like the final straw that broke the camel's back. And again, it's part of education where I explain to them, it has nothing to do with you. We do everything. Consider us your wheelbarrow for you know your patients and everything that's below the neck going on and it's being integrated all you need to give us is an office that we can see patients in you know as a makeshift office even like a mash unit almost you know but i mean you know years ago healthcare when i started out 20 years ago it was all about quantity over quality and now with ACOs and with you know changes in healthcare from the federal level with Obamacare and whatnot, it's more about quality over quantity, right? And that's where ACOs, accountable care organizations, came about. We need that ACO mentality in behavioral health field about accountability, about reportability, about you know, about change being a good word. Change is opportunity. Change is not something to fear. And I think in healthcare, a lot of people look at change as a vehicle of fear and not a vehicle of opportunity, you know, both for themselves and the community that we serve. So I, I definitely think that a policy has to happen at the state and federal level, at the payer level, to approach holistic care, A to Z, integrated into behavioral health centers. For a while, they thought, oh, why don't we bring behavioral health to primary care? That's not where we need to bring it. We need to bring primary care to behavioral health. That's what the statistics are telling us, you know? So, um, you know, so I, I, unfortunately, it's probably out of our pay grade, but it has to come at a policy level. And hopefully people who, you know, are sitting in Medicaid and Medicare offices and at Horizon and Aetna, will understand that they need to really go down the hallway and talk to their colleagues on the behavioral health side and see how we can bring this all together. I love that framework. You know, I used to work in provider organizations in uh, family medicine. 
as an administrator, and the thought was always, how do we bring behavioral health into primary care, but not the inverse. But um, it makes a lot of sense that we would approach it in the inverse and, and bring primary care into behavioral health. And it works. We've been doing it for, I don't know, now six, seven years with our CHOP program. And I shared that white paper, I think, with you, Maria. And so that white paper is a small sample of a big product that works. We'll be placing that in the show notes so that people can refer to it. But maybe this is a good question to ask you now. What would you say is the biggest lesson learned from setting up that program? That it's easy and it works and why can't we do it all the time everywhere? Honestly, it makes no sense. I'm like hitting my head against a wall. You don't understand the frustration. Like it's frustrating. It's so frustrating that the system is broken and it's not that hard to fix. I'm not asking for a cure for cancer here. I'm asking for a, a process that we can scale. It's scalable. And you don't need like a healthcare system. Get a nurse practitioner and place a primary care nurse practitioner in an outpatient behavioral health center and just watch it happen. Maria, maybe I can share with you, we, we've developed a lot of resources over the years to help organizations think about how to do this. What does it actually mean to bring primary care capacity uh, and how do you scale that up? So we just published a paper in conjunction with Montefiore this past year uh, that I'm happy to share with you that is a real practical guide to help organizations assess where they are and to have very concrete goals uh, to improve their primary care uh, capacity within behavioral health organizations. That would be fantastic to share. I do have a follow-up question that maybe is a whole different show, but I would love the opportunity to hear from you, Chuck, what your thoughts are. There's a lot of apps and technology uh, solutions that people want to promote for any number of things. And sometimes you see on television, you know, you can get a career, uh, you can get a counselor, I should say, on your phone uh, if you subscribe to a certain service. There's coaching on the phone. I wonder if you could say something about what you're seeing in terms of technology playing a role in addressing mental health needs. Well, Marie, I, I think about this in two ways, and, and I am biased, right? So I really think about this from a, a perspective of organized systems of behavioral health and what role can technology play in extending care in an organized system? So can we offer support to people in between appointments? Can we augment the kind of the in-face, the in-person clinical work that we're doing? And we've seen a, you know, a lot of success with that in terms of either remote patient monitoring or asynchronous CB, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy or other kinds of interventions like that. That I'm really excited about, but we still have some real huge challenges in terms of reimbursement. I'm not as excited about, hey, I'm going to call this number and get some random, random practitioner, and I never know who I'm going to get when I call. You know, that, that part scares me personally, uh, you know, a little bit. How about you, Dr. Salerno? What do you think about any sort of meaningful technology applications? As Chuck just defined, you know, there's some that can work, but there's a lot of hype about technology and it's a bit scary sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I would go to the app store on my iPhone and you know, try to seek out you know, something to really replace um, a professional, maybe enhance, maybe provide me some homework, you know, but not certainly replace. Um, you know, I, I do think obviously because of COVID, 
we learn the values and the um, applications of telemedicine. And so, you know, and I and and to this day, I think there are values to telemedicine, especially in the follow-up and in between sessions. But it's not a replacement to face-to-face. -to -face. It's not a replacement to eye-to-eye. -eye. So I think it is a good piece to a solution puzzle, but it's not the fundamental piece. And it has its right applications, but it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot about how do we think about a hybrid model of care, right? What's the some in-person, some virtual, some asynchronous, but with appropriate kind of payment models to support uh, to support that over time? Couldn't agree with you more, Dr. Salerno. Yeah, I, I would agree that uh, a hybrid model probably makes best sense. And I actually had an appointment today uh, with my mental health provider and I am sitting in Rochester, Minnesota physically, and my provider's in Georgia. But the reality is he shouldn't have been treating me because he doesn't have licensure outside of Georgia. And I think we have to be able to think about that from a resource allocation perspective, right? Some states are going to have more resources than others, but if we only limit their practice to that state, then it creates some challenges. Um, I also think from the technology perspective, it can be an enabler, but it also can be something that exacerbates disparities if we're not careful, right? And, and thinking about who has access, thinking about rural communities and lack of infrastructure for internet. So it is always a double-edged sword with technology, but I do think that we have to incorporate it to be able to create more access, but it has to be both a model of sort of blended approach and one that, that is enabling of communities that may be under-resourced or underserved. But, I mean, I think the heart of that, right, is it's got to make, it's got to work, right? It's a part of the dialogue between a practitioner and a client about what, what do they need and what works. It shouldn't be imposed, right? It, it should be, it should make sense clinically and, uh, you know, uh, from a feasibility perspective. And I mean, even like in big ticket items or areas, I should say, like urban communities, suburban communities, metropolitan communities, we're not crushing it there. It's broken everywhere universally, you know? And, and so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm in Newark, New Jersey. I mean, it's the largest city in New Jersey. I mean, you have so many hospitals, University Hospital, St. Michael's Hospital, Robert Wood Johnson System. I mean, you have a lot of brick and mortar. You have a lot of people. But I don't think we have a lot of measured success. And it's not lack of access, but it's just lack of this integrated, unique, empathetic approach. Like empathy is something that's really just a lost word. It really needs to be a defining characteristic if you put on a white coat or you're somehow related to a healthcare, you know, delivery model. There's just a lot of things right now that we're, you know, as close as we are, we're really far apart from at the same time. I definitely think that we, we've come a long way, but we're not there yet compared to 20 years ago when I started, you know, my, my career. We as providers and as uh, consumers are just part of the puzzle. The real part of it has to come from the policy above us, you know, and if we can create the policy where we can integrate more, treat people over paper, 
we were talking about like billing, right? Billing is like insane. Like you need a PhD in billing to understand it. It was bad enough that we had 30,000 ICD-9 codes. Now we have to go to 150,000 codes. Why? Like, why, why do I need all those codes? I don't need all those codes. Those codes aren't helping the person. It's just a label, you know? In fact, we don't need that label. We need to know problem and solution. I think our resources need to be redirected a little bit better and focused a little bit better. And I think we need to, you know, come down from the ivory towers more into the street war that we're fighting here, okay? And understand each block is unique because we are a melting pot, okay? There is nothing, you know, that we can't save, but we are a melting pot. We are very unique. Every block is unique. And we pride on ourselves on uniqueness. Yet why are we trying to approach things with a one-size-fits-all formula from Aetna or Horizon or whoever? We like to ask our guests, you know, towards the end of these sessions, personal reflection question, which is really how have you and are you navigating your own personal well-being really during this time of heightened stress um, of our country and the world these days? During COVID, I really have relied on kind of two things to keep me sane. One, uh, my church sends out a daily meditation that I make sure that I take advantage of first thing in the morning. And then the other way that I have really kept my sanity these last two years, we got two dogs and they're a great distraction. And, uh, you know, it's uh, certainly helped a lot. I mean, so I've been on a adrenaline high for two years. Um, and basically, you know, it was our call to duty, if you would. And I kind of, I did not take my PP, you know, e-money and, and work from home. We opened seven days a week. When a bay goes, we started pop-up tents and, you know, it was our time to step up and, and do what we needed to do. So it was undaunting for two years, 24-7. I mean, we have a staff of 300. So every time one of my staff got COVID, I, I went through like, you know, growing pains with them when they were going through COVID, especially the first phase of COVID when it was so deadly, so to speak. We're not out of it. I think we all have to accept COVID's here for good. It's never going to go away. It's just part of our life. And, you know, flu has always killed people. Up to 50, 60,000 people a year die from flu. Nobody talked about it. And I think when it settles down, we're going to see, you know, close to that same number a year with whatever new variant of COVID we're going to have. It's going to be 50 to 70,000 people probably dying per year. But we have to still grow and heal and be real again. You know, we can't be just Zooming all the time. But what I did actually right now is for the first time in 20 years, I took a 10-week sabbatical. Um, so I'm not seeing patients. I am doing yoga with a trainer. I'm doing fitness with a trainer because I gained 20 pounds uh, with COVID. And COVID, we gained weight. We lost life expectancy. I'm trying to eat clean, juicing, intermittent fasting. I found a functional medicine doctor for myself. I am going to a Buddhist retreat in upstate New York for three days just to, again, zen out and, and meditate. I'm trying to take care of mind, body, and soul. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. Uh, Dr. Salerno, it is wonderful that you are taking that sabbatical. Um, I'm going to have sort of a sabbatical in that I'm having a kid. I don't know how much resting that I'm going to be able to do. 
but hopefully I'll be able to fit in some exercise and a little bit of meditation every now and again. But we want to thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation, and we really appreciate you both being a part of our podcast. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Thank you. Thank you all so very much. Thank you for listening to Centering Health Equity, a podcast dedicated to conversations on reducing bias in healthcare and advancing health equity. You've been listening to our conversation with Dr. Alexander Salerno, Director of the Community Health Outreach Program, and Chuck Ingoglia, President and CEO of the National Council for Mental Wellbeing. For more information about their work, please visit our website at centeringhealthequity.com. You'll find show notes and more information about our guests. If you'd like to be on our show or would like to recommend someone for us to interview, please share this with us on our website or send us your recommendation on Twitter at CenterHealthEQ. Until next time, be well.